start this. Thanks for coming out on a rainy evening here, rainy spring evening. Um, tonight's subject is cultural milieu. This is a, a, a not a very good phrase, but I haven't been able to come up with a better word or, or, or phrase to, to get the idea across. But so far, what we've been covering is the behaviors of the individual. Again, leisure we've talked about, letter writing, walking, um, salons and cafes, the art of conversation. These are all behaviors of individuals. Now, to get the kinds of fluorescences that I have four exemplary moments, I hope everybody got a copy of this, um, is not the work of an individual. This is what happens when a group of individuals who share the humane instinct or whatever you want to call it, come together. Um, and that's why I'm trying to articulate the idea of the cultural milieu. And what is required, what seems to be present during these particular periods, if you have the individuals and then you have the right milieu. If you're talking about the individual, now let's talk about the milieu. First, however, let's look at the notion of creative. And this is one uh, that is, is tough to pin down, but one thing that's clear is the desire to, need to create is, seems fundamental to human beings. There's no time in the archaeological record when we find signs of human existence that we do not find artwork. None whatsoever. Um, as soon as we do anything, we start doing art of various kinds, sculpture, lots of evidence that music is, is, is right there, operative at the same time. And so the desire to create, the need for self-expression is, as far as we can tell, probably a biological drive in human beings as much as anything else. Uh, it's like food, water, sex, reproduction, self-expression, creative expression seems innate. Um, which then requires some explaining to where it goes, right? <laughs> if, if one suggests that it is innate, then any sort of lack of its presence needs explanation. What we generally do is say, well, it's something that you learn from the outside. I think this is pretty clearly wrong in, the, in the, both the archaeological and sociological record, but we'll talk about that. But this notion that the creative is almost certainly innate in human beings because, like I said, we never find evidence of a time when it's not present, which suggests rather strongly that it is a part of our biological makeup. But assuming we have that, uh, and we're assuming we have the sort of humane culture we've been discussing of individuals, what kind of milieu do you need to allow it to express itself to its fullest capacity? If you look at your list briefly, I put the Italian, I like try to go for a spread. So I got Italian Renaissance, <laughs> Bay Area music groups of the 60s, Tong poet, uh, poets flourishing, 650, 70. This is just sort of the high period. They call it the flourishing, or I think golden period. Uh, English Romanticism and French Impressionism. Um, this list of Italian Renaissance artists is short. I mean, this could go on and on. These, but, but these are major figures. That covers about 70 years. And it covers a geographical area. If you look at a map of Europe, that is insignificant. This is where these people were operating. You can take the artists from the preceding 300 years and throw them out, and you'd go, oh, well, that's kind of a shame. But you would, I mean, you like that. Uh, and then, and then the, the, the next hundred years, you know, oh, we lose some of the Rococo people. You know, I mean, it would be bad. We don't need to lose them. But, you know, 
Donatello, Brunelleschi, Da Vinci, Michelangelo, Titian, Tintoretto, Bellini, Botticelli, Caravaggio, Ghiberti, Giotto, Raphael. I mean, boom, right there. One small space, one small time period. Those people. I mean, unbelievable concentration of human artistic capital. What makes that possible? Again, Bay Area, 60s music groups. This is a decade, about 30 or 40 square miles, 30 mile radius. Generous, I don't think you need 30 miles, but we'll call it 30 miles. Population, San Francisco is about 700,000. The Bay Area was a little over a million at this time. So, but really it's all about San Francisco, but the Bay Area, we'll stretch it out there a little bit. So that means it was roughly half the size of Philadelphia. Right? If you look at a map of the United States in the 1960s and say, where is there going to be a cultural fluorescence? You would not pick the like ninth or 10th largest metro area out there someplace in the middle of nowhere on the west coast. LA maybe, but we're talking one-sixth, one-eighth the size of New York City. Uh, again, half the size of Philadelphia, quarter the size of you know, the Boston area. Um, Baltimore is much larger. Baltimore, good Lord, Baltimore, right? I mean, and yet, in this very small area, in this incredibly short time period, you get Grateful Dead, Jefferson Airplane, Santana, Moby Grape, Sly and the Family Stone, Big Brother and the Holding Company, Steve Miller Band, Hot Tuna, New Riders of Purple Sage, Credence Clearwater Revival, Country Joe and the Fish, Tower of Power, and the Doobie Brothers. And again, this list can go on. I was just sort of edited it down to sort of the, the, the big people that most everyone will recognize if you're familiar at all with music from this time period. Again, just right there. Small area, small population, boom. Uh, the Tong Poets. Again, this list really goes on. And I'm not going to try and say all these names because uh, it would be embarrassing. Uh, but, you know, the notion that Li Bai and Du Fu lived contemporaneously and in roughly the same place. I mean, that's, that's, that in itself would make a golden age right there. You have a golden age of poetry if you have those two guys. The fact that all the rest of these would be superstars in any other period. But they just happen to live when Levi and Dufu were, so they're sort of second tier only by comparison. Again, this is 100 years. It's not really 100 years, but it's sort of stretching. It's about 80 years, really. But let's call it 100 years. Um, in the history of Chinese poetry. And again, you could lose like a thousand years of Chinese history and get rid of all the poets in there, and you'd be like, oh, well, yeah, we lost that person over there, and those guys, that's kind of sad. But here it is. This is the poetry that you would, that you really go, wow, that's, that's a loss. Again, English Romantic, same story, Wordsworth, Coleridge, Shelley, Keats, Byron, Mary Wollstonecraft, Hazlitt, De Quincey, Lamb, Austin, and Scott. Sir Walter Scott. Um, they all slept together, really. I mean, that's the main thing about the English romantic. That's a slight exaggeration, but I mean, more or less. That they're, they're all closely linked. I mean, so this, that is a very short time period, very tight-knit uh, group that produced, again, uh, astonishing, particularly, uh, you know, well, in every way. I mean, in fiction, in poetry, in literary criticism, art criticism, in historical understanding. I mean, this spreads all over the place. Um, that's just Coleridge. Uh, and, then, and, then, uh, and then French Impressionism, which perhaps people might be most familiar with. I mean, I, I kept cutting that list down. Every time I kept cutting names, I'm like, oh, really? I'm just pitching. Okay, wow. You know, it was, you know, it was painful. Um, but again, 80 years, 70 years, it's not even that long. It's two generations that overlapped. Um, and it's 
Paris and its immediate, envi immediate environs for most of the time, they all moved in and out of Paris, but it, the Paris was sort of the sun around which they all orbited. Again, how do you explain this? I mean, how is it that you can look at, you know, before this, you know, you have Ingres, you know, he's a great painter. Um, you have some other great painters, of course, operating, but then you get these amazing fluorescences. One thing you need, let's look, look at what you need. You need material support. And this is important to remember. It, it, you know, it's, it's not all mine. It's, we have a material world. You need money. You need food. You need a place to operate. You need supplies. Where does that come from? A couple of sources historically, uh, and, and it varies by time period, but you have to have that support. In many places, it was the government. So when you look at the Dong Bullets, the, uh, in fact, most of the Asian art comes from, directly or indirectly, from the government. So you can get a government job um, in the form of a sinecure. A sinecure is a government job where you don't have to do anything. These are really good. Uh, it, and, and it's a way of the government usually rewarding you. And they say, oh, we're going to make you the Bishop of Mainz. And you go, yes, but I live in Cologne. And they're like, oh, that's fine, you have to move. We don't, we don't need to go there. We're just going to give you the money. And you're like, oh, that's great then. Erasmus is a great example of this. He was a bishop of some place he never went. Uh, you know, and it, plus he was not clear he believed in it anyway. Uh, so, but, but, you know, that's what you make him a bishop. Give him some money. We'll help him out. Um, so you can get sinecures. Many, many of the uh, Dong boats had sinecures, or they had government positions that, you know, they didn't require that much work. Um, or they were in government service and they retired. They left government service and they got pensions. All of these are, are good ways to go. You can get grants, money, support. Mozart and Beethoven are examples of this. They did never, neither of them ever got the government job, but they, uh, they did get the government or aristocratic grants of money for specific jobs, commissions, awards. You know, they, they, they like to give people like gold medals. Um, and now we get a gold medal, but they always sold them, right? Because it was the gold part of the medal that they were really interested in, not the metal part of the medal. We're like, ooh, I want a gold medal. They're like, yeah, it's worth money. Uh, so there was a lot of these awards that were given that were a way of providing support other than just commissions, but primarily it was commissions. If you look at the Renaissance, uh, other than people like Michelangelo, who was, uh, of course, the, the court slave uh, there, um, much of the work that was done was done on commission. And so these painters and sculptors traveled around from little principality to the next, to the pope, to another principality, to a cardinal, to try and get commissions to do various works of art. Um, then there is just the straightforward government job. This is actually relatively rare. But like both Mozart and Beethoven were always trying to get the court composer job. Um, Hello. That's okay. Well, let's turn that off. Uh, uh, it's probably for the best that neither of them did because the history of getting the job as the court composer or the court poet is really weak. It's not very strong. Because particularly if you're the court poet, uh, Persian poetry is filled with it. The purpose of the court poet is to tell the ruler how great he is. And this doesn't make for great epic poetry. Oh, he is so wonderful. We love him. He is the best. On and on. Thousands of, of lines of verse. But occasionally there is the court job of the court composer. Haydn being, you know, if we're going to stick with the um, musical examples, being the, the classic there. Then there's just the straight aristocracy, uh, meaning you are a member of. Um, 
Um, so it, being, being independently wealthy, good deal. Always looks good. Historically, it's worked out. Seems to be a good deal today. I recommend it highly. Um, but then taking that money and, and hence the time that it helps generate and investing it in whatever you're going to do. The shining example here is the uh, scientific revolution um, that was brought about at the turn of the 18th and 19th century was almost entirely funded by and participated in by um, nobles of various kinds from both continental Europe and England uh, who self-funded their research. Um, and like Darwin being the classic example, he was the heir of a porcelain fortune. Um, and he was a minor aristocrat himself before, but then he married really well. Another good way to go, by the way, marry a bitch. And this freed them up. But what they did with their free time is they spent huge sums of money uh, and time trying to work out scientific problems. And so much of the scientific revolution was not done by quote-unquote professional scientists. It was done by uh, aristocrats investing their time, money, energy, mental capacities um, into exploring these ideas. Finally, the model that we tend to have in our minds most strongly uh, is the self-supporting artist. This is historically anomalous. Uh, artists have not been self-supporting. This is not the way the arts have worked. Wandering minstrels, yes, that's one way you could, do, you could have done the troubadour poets, this sort of history, uh, that would work. Other than that, it's very sketchy you generally need outside support because prior to the institution of any kind of copyright law or any artist, why would you pay them, right? Shakespeare had this problem his whole life. I mean, this is why he got involved with managing, as far as we can tell, and owning a theater because he worked it out. Let's see, I write the plays. They say they're going to pay me, then they don't, but they put the plays on, they make money, and then I still don't have any money. Wait a second, I'm going to open a theater. Right? This is this. He did the math and went. I think I'll get in on the other side of the action, um, and that's apparently how he supported himself, as far as we can tell. But it wasn't through writing plays because you, you you basically could not support yourself that way. It, it was almost impossible, um, and that's been true through most of history. Right around the 19th century, late 19th, early 20th century, this begins to change. Uh, the Impressionist movement being an example of this, but. Then what you get is you need this ratio, which we'll talk about and which you see in the Bay Area music groups, of cost of living to potential income. If you're going to be a self-supporting artist, which means you have very limited or no money, then you need an environment where it's very cheap to live. The Bohemian movement, and there's been various Bohemian movements, there's been one, but this, the notion of Bohemianism and, and Bohemian movements is the notion of, oh, we've got a place, usually associated with cities, where it's really cheap, and it's cheap because it's crappy or dangerous or both, right? <laughs> this is always the deal. Um, in, in Paris, it's the notion of, oh, he lives in a garret. Why were garrets so cheap? Well, they tend to be in the attics. And remember, this is before elevators. So if you have a nine-floor story building and then an attic, if you want water in your room, you have to carry it up 10 floors. If you want heat, you have to carry coal up 10 floors. If you want food, you have to carry it up 10 floors. You know what? That's cheap. That's cheap space. Because if you have any money at all, it, it's worth it to you to say, well, I don't want to walk up those stairs. I'll move down a floor. 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 The rich you are, the lower you used to live. Just the inverse of the way it is now. Um, and so, you know, you could get that apartment because they either made the servants live up there or they rented it out to wastrel poets and painters and whatnot. 
Um, or you lived in very run-down, again, danger, literally dangerous districts or various places where you could manage to do this. Um, famously, all the French, like American writers in France, uh, in, in between the wars, uh, why were they there? Why was Hemingway uh, and Fitzgerald, why were they hanging out in France? Well, the French currency had collapsed. Uh, and so it turns out it's cheap. If you have hard currency from a, another country, it's cheap to live in a country where the currency has collapsed. And so you are relatively wealthy. Um, and so Hemingway, I don't know if, you, if anybody's read A Movable Feast. The, yeah, it's a complete and utter scam, by the way. He's lying his ass off through the whole thing. He, he was, by all counts, wealthy. There is no, he was a wealthy man. Um, not, not in the sense of, like, you know, having chauffeurs and stuff, but he could have afforded to live because he got a certain amount of money a month. I can't remember how much it was. It was, I think it was like 75 U.S. dollars, which doesn't sound like a lot. And it wasn't in America at the time. But in Paris at the time, he could have lived in a, any street in Paris, had all his meals brought in, um, and, and lived, you know, spectacularly well on $75 a month. No problem. He would be envy of all his friends. Um, he lost most of his money gambling. He was a terrible gambler. Um, and he forgets to report this. Uh, I don't know why. Um, but it doesn't make it in the book. But this is, but so places like Paris have a chance to flourish um, with the arts when, well, the economy collapses and, and artists can afford to live there for very, very low costs. Um, based on this, by the way, I'll now offer a prediction. Years ago, when the wall came down in East Germany, I wrote about this and I said, when East and West Germany are joined, I said, well, there's going to, Berlin's going to be the art capital of Europe in about 15, 20 years because everybody is moving out of East Berlin into West Berlin because East Berlin is, you know, not that Soviet architecture isn't beautiful in every way, uh, but it was really not that comparatively lovely. Um, but what you then ended up with was functional space, unbelievably cheap because nobody wanted to live there. So it actually became almost free for a while to live in East Berlin, as long as you didn't, you know, want of things besides, you know, you had space and some cold, cold water uh, and power, maybe. Um, after that, it got sketchy. But it was there, it was inexpensive, and you're hooked right in with West Berlin, one of the capitals of Europe. And so this close connection between very inexpensive living spaces and a major capital produced what is now, Berlin is of course now one of, if not the cultural capital of Europe right now. Lots of stuff going on in Berlin. Uh, similar prediction, Detroit. You write it down. <laughs> Detroit. Right now you can go to Detroit and, and buy a city block for 50 or $60. Um, they, I mean, they will give you space if you'll, literally, they will give you space if you will maintain it. If you go to downtown Detroit and commit to maintaining a building, they will give you the building. And I mean building, like, you know, 7, 8, 10, 12-story buildings. Uh, they are desperate there. Um, this will attract people. This will attract people who say, oh, I, I need a lot of space to do crazy metal art. I need, you know, I, whatever they want to do, this becomes a possibility. If Detroit doesn't completely collapse, which it might, you know, this has happened historically, if it starts to rebound at all, it will become a major art center. So this is, this is a constant push and pull, but, but do not discount the necessity of the material environment. If it's too expensive, if space is unavailable, um, it tends not to work. This is, this is why theoretically good places for art tend not to, to function that well. Um, and why places that are sometimes artsy, they, they get priced out, and we can all think, you know, gentrification problem. 
oh, it's really cool, so people move there, and it's so expensive, so everybody has to move out. It's a, it's a continuous uh, uh, problem, San Francisco being a classic example of this difficulty. Another thing, besides the actual physical material environment, is you have to have a, a, an environment that allows you the opportunity to be creative and express yourself. We're so used to living in a country that has essentially almost no forms of censorship that we don't notice this anymore. But this is, again, historically anomalous. Uh, if you're Voltaire, again, I like Voltaire as an example because he was constantly in trouble. He was constantly getting arrested, thrown in jail, having to leave countries. And so he was able to do a lot of his work. He was not able to do nearly as much work as he would have been able to do had he not been continuously censored. Many more of his plays would have been produced. Many more of his plays would have been written. Uh, much of the writing of Voltaire that we have was actually private writing. It's stuff that he wanted to make public, but that he just couldn't. And, I mean, even the stuff that got made public, he was continuously, basically through his entire life, in trouble for. And that was during the Enlightenment. I mean, this was when things were loosening up. Prior to that, you have all kinds of problems. Artists, painters, sculptors, writers, continuously running afoul of environments that said, you can't write that, you can't say that, you can't paint that, you can't perform that. Shakespeare's plays, up, there, down. They were all censored, by the way. All of Shakespeare's plays had to be approved by censors. Um, and, and the evidence we have is that they were heavily redacted in some instances. Um, and so, you know, it, it, it makes you wonder what, what, what might have been there. Um, until the 1940s in the United States, all literature was heavily censored um, and, and, and carefully controlled. This is why Henry Miller is still trying to work his way into the American literary canon, because his books basically weren't available here until post-World War II, which the French just still can't figure out. You know, in French literature, Henry Miller is a major American author. In America, he, doesn't, he just doesn't rate. He is not a significant figure yet. Maybe at some point he will be. But part of the reason is because they had him 20 years before we had him. Because the censorship in America was so um, insistent on that. But you need an environment where it is you know, not just legal, but you know, you're not going to get beat up. You're not going to get killed. You aren't going to get arrested. Um, another example of this in our own time period, I don't know if people remember the whole rave music movement. Uh, which is the idea is you play a lot of dance music, uh, more or less for 24 hours, and, and, and you dance. There you go, the rave movement. Um, well, people hated this. Governments hated this. England, in particular, had all kinds of laws they passed. Seattle spent about six years trying to outlaw it. They kept trying to come up with ways to make it. Like, they would came up with a law that said something like, you couldn't play music continuously for more than two and a half hours. <laughs> but it turns out that you can't pass that kind of law. Obviously, this did not hold up in court. So then they tried to say, you can't serve water in an event for more than six hours. And then they would say, well, if you, I mean, no, this is serious. You can go back and look at the Seattle Time Records on this. They were trying to put all kinds of ways to make this form of musical expression and dance illegal. Um, there was no, I, like you could, they could never articulate why. They just didn't like them. Like a lot of young kids dancing, we suspect they might be taking drugs. <laughs> Uh, because nobody in Seattle had ever taken drugs prior to that time. Um, and, it, you know, it was one of these just knee-jerk reactions uh, to say, no, no, we don't want that to happen. We want that to be outlawed. But this is a continuous battle. If, if um, somebody had a street music scene out here in Port Townsend, and people walked by and said, oh, we really like this guy, we like these ladies they are playing great, great. At some point, if, like, two or three hundred people gathered around, the police would show up and say, you know what, you cannot have two or three hundred people in the street, which is not an unreasonable position, 
right? And then if they said, well, where would you like us to play? They're like, well, that's your problem, not our problem. And then if every place in town said, no, you can't play here, you can't play here, you can't play here, well, pretty soon you have nothing, right? This, this, is, a, this is a problem in every major city, by the way, um, because the space, historically, it's changing a little bit now. There's been very few venues for things like, say, jazz. You would think, oh, there'd be you know, lots of jazz clubs, lots of where can you play jazz? It's not that loud, but it's a little bit loud. And so how many clubs are there that you can play jazz? If, if you look at a, a, a city like Prague, I, I conservatively say there's 150 clubs in Prague where you can play jazz, and where jazz is being played any given week, weekend no. night. Now, currently, probably more. Uh, in Seattle, there's not 50. There's not 20, I don't know. There may be 20, uh, there probably isn't 20. Why? One, the financial incentive isn't there, but the other problem is just straight up zoning. The zoning laws make it very tricky to put a band in anywhere. And, and there's, you know, rock bands and other all kinds of bands that want to play. Where can you play? Ooh. This is why music scenes often happen in places like the Bay Area. San Francisco had become moderately depopulated. There was lots of empty space. And so you could play a concert very cheaply because the space essentially was abandoned in an old, in an old warehouse or an old club that was large enough to make it financially viable within a population center that was large enough to attend the concerts regularly. So places like the Winterland could have three or four concerts a week in a good-sized venue with a population that was wanted to see it. And so it made it financially viable for not everybody, not rich, but viable. Until right now, that would be illegal. You cannot do this in San Francisco today. They've changed all the zoning laws. You can't have that many people in a club. You know, it all has been changed. And, you know, it's fire safety, electrical safety, whatever safety, code, why, whatever. If the space is not available to do a concert, to allow play to go on, then, um, you know, it's, it's, it can't happen. And so you need the material resources, which is artists have to eat, they have to have... Um, you know, space, they need their art supplies, that's all relatively cheap and generally has been moderately available. You need the social or, or sort of climate that allows through lack of censorship, lack of uh, things that make it just straight up illegal to do whatever it is you want to do, or make it physically unavailable. So that's sort of the entire material component. Probably more important than that, all of that can be worked around and has been worked around historically. Um, is something I've, I've just decided to call is that it matters. There has to be a sense that it matters. And, of course, to whom? <laughs> right? But if there's no stakes, it turns out that nothing seems to happen. All the evidence is that no matter where you are at any given time in history, there are people who are roughly doing all of these things or, or would like to be doing them if they had the opportunity. But when do they sort of coalesce and manifest themselves in a way that makes it sort of amazing and that we can notice it and that it lasts or influences generations to come is when it seems to matter. And of course the mattering comes in several kinds of ways. In certain historical periods, often the case, often not the case though, governments decide they care. During the Cold War with the Soviet Union, all of a sudden we decided we really cared because our artists are better than their artists. We know that. We're going to kick those rusty ass artists, right? No more of that. 
And so when um, Von Cliburn goes and wins the Tchaikovsky concert in the Soviet Union, wow! <laughs> Americans who could care less. They have no idea who Tchaikovsky is. They don't know what a grand piano looks like. They don't, you know, they don't know. They don't know that the Tchaikovsky composition has been going on for a long time, that there may be other good pianists there, right? None of this matters. All they know is that an American beat the Russians at their own game. Like Tchaikovsky's game was some sort of Soviet communist game. You know, he's just a great composer, right? But anyway, but this was the idea. And in that environment, then it really seems to matter. I mean, it's a silly way for it to matter, but boy, it really does seem to matter. And so the government, our government, for years during the Cold War, we poured millions and millions of dollars into touring musicians, touring writers, funding them at home, funding them to go to abroad, all of this cultural exchanges. Why? Because we had to show the world who's the best. We're the best. Those Russians don't have any writers. You know, <laughs> name one great Russian writer, right? You know, no, they don't have anybody, right? I mean, it's this crazy notion, but this was the idea that we we're somehow retroactively prove that they couldn't do it. Yeah, no, it's just silly, of course, but this was our idea. Uh, you know, Dostoevsky, he doesn't count. Uh, you know, but, but so it has to matter. Um, again, in China, Imperial China, uh, through pretty much about half their history, if not more, to be in the government, you had to pass the Confucian exams. It was the first attempt to promote by merit. It's one of the great cultural breakthroughs of the Chinese uh, system was to say, hey, let's open this up to people who are intelligent and driven. That's a good idea for your government. It turns out it's a good idea. Um, but basically their exam was a, how well do you know the Chinese humanist culture? You, you have to memorize it, basically, and be able to reproduce it in beautiful calligraphy. Um, that's the Chinese exam. Um, and so the entire court was populated with people who knew poetry, uh, knew the Confucian Analects and various other classics, and could write beautiful calligraphy, because this is how you got promoted. In that environment, let me tell you, poetry really, really matters. Calligraphy really, really matters, because it was the key to promotion. Uh, weirdly enough. What's even stranger about this is it seems to work. Somehow this system produces people who can build the most sophisticated canal systems in the world. Locks, dams, you know, thousands of miles. What, what did you study in school? Poetry. <laughs> what are you doing now? I'm leading an army against the Mongols. You know, Want to see my calligraphy? It's spectacular. You know, it, 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 but somehow it works. It, it's, well, it's been working for several thousand years. Uh, but this is their system, right? That, 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 that fundamental humanist education. So for, the, for their poets, I mean, it really seemed to matter. And one thing to remember about it, almost all of the Chinese figures we've seen had left government. Not all of them, but most of them. But they had been in government. One of the great garden uh, books in ancient China, one of the earliest ones too, was written by a guy who called his garden, he had it written in, in, in Chinese script above the entry to his garden, the garden of failed political ambition. <laughs> right? How is it that I have all this time to make this beautiful garden? Well, I was England to be the governor of you know, a province, and I didn't make it, and I got retired, and so here it is, the garden of failed political ambition, which, you know, is, he, and he took it both ways, right? Because I get this beautiful garden, but why am I here? This is sort of the history of the, of, of the Chinese letters, but it mattered to them. 
Uh, another way for it to matter is with specific elites. Um, if you don't care about the government, you think the government is corrupt or stupid or backwards, or what, but there are other elites. You might align yourself with the church. You could be a church painter and church musician. Uh, this is essentially what Bach was. He wasn't, there's no evidence that he was ever sort of government interest at all, but he was definitely working for the church and he wanted to make those people happy and, you know, there you go, apparently he did. Uh, so that element, is there certain aristocratic elites? In our time, you can be certain social elites, right? If, if you can appeal to, you know, the East Coast art mafia and get your, your works in certain kinds of oh. environments, that will give you a very strong feedback that you matter, right? Um, subcultural appeals. When, when the 60s art scene happens, they're appealing to a subculture. But the subculture was long enough, uh, large enough, and they were all together, so they all told each other that it mattered, and then these people showed up and said, we love your music, and so it seemed to matter. And so this, one way of thinking about a subculture is a simply a group of people gathering together to tell each other that they matter. <laughs> right? Which, which is, but, but I think it's, this, truly, I think this is vital. I mean, think about the Impressionists. What they do matters. The French Impressionists wanted to be in the salon that the government threw. Because if you were in there, that was official. You know, this is the USDA beef stamp of you, you matter. You're approved. You're a good thing. So when they couldn't get in, their big rebellion was to set up their own salon, which is not really that much of a rebellion, right? It's just a simply a way of saying, no, we think that we matter. And so we're going to set up a salon, just exactly like the salon that we couldn't get into, that people could come and see, and see that we do matter. At the same time, most of them were trying desperately to get into the original salon. Uh, it was one of the big tensions that they had. Some of them said, I don't care. And, and other ones were like, no, I really want to get in there. Because they want the recognition. They want to feel as if what they're doing matters. Um, and finally, where we are today, I think the main thing is, is popularity. And this should not be discounted, but it's rare. Uh, basically, the first popular hit in Western history was uh, The Sorrows of Young Werther by Goethe, which is not that long ago. I mean, you're going back a little over 200 years. Um, that was the first sort of popular hit. Um, Franz Liszt falls in this category, where, wow, he was popular. That's how he got his notoriety, is for people really loved him. Um, but but the, the numbers now, if we looked at it, were vanishingly small. Um, but the effect was, wow, there's a lot, relative to the time, of people who care about you, but they weren't elites. They weren't people you necessarily knew. The thing with elite groups, government support, subcultural support, is you tend to know the people who are supporting you. With popular support, you tend not to know the people who are supporting you. There's a whole change of environment. But for us, one way of mattering is to be popular. So if you think about something like, oh, say, Harry Potter books, why do they matter? I don't know anybody has ever accused them of being great literature, right? This is not one of the, the things that, that is, the, but they're so popular that they gain weight. And so you're like, wow, this must be significant. And one of the differences between American journalism and European journalism, by the way, on this, if you look at, if you read Le Monde or the Neue Deutsche Zeitung, which is a big German newspaper. Um, these sorts of magazines or, 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 or newspapers, 
they almost never review the books on the bestseller lists. The bestseller lists in France and Germany and Italy and Spain and China look almost exactly like the bestseller lists in America. They read exactly the same much crap as we do at pretty much the same rate, and often they're the exact same titles just translated into foreign languages, which makes them funny, right? Because it's like the Beverly Hills Grapefruit Diet, which in German is like, what the hell? Oh, that's hilarious. That's a Beverly Hills. Oh, okay, that's all great. You know, uh, it, it, it's... it's um, but if you read Le Monde, or if you read a German serious newspaper or magazine, or, or French or a Spanish one, Spanish not so much, or newspapers are weird, but um, the, the reviews will be of, you know, oh, there's a new biography of, of Proust out. Let's spend 50,000 words talking about that. Now, they know no one's going to read it by, by population, but they don't care about popularity. They care about quality. They care about what they're interested in. We've sort of lost that here. I remember a couple of years ago, I remember a couple of years ago, a Godzilla movie came out. And the New Yorker, which is sort of our highest, you know, sort of the New Yorker, did a full page review to say, wow, that was a bad movie. <laughs> it, it, notice how strange that is. Why would we do that? Well, in America in particular, Anything that popular matters. And so the New Yorker felt compelled. I mean, they didn't need to watch the movie to know it was going to be bad. The reviewer didn't go in there thinking, you know, this really could be a great Godzilla movie. No, he went in there going, what am I going to say to pan this that would be entertaining to the readers? Which is what they wrote, a very entertaining pan. Um, but it's like, why would you do that? Ah, because here, the main way you matter is through popularity, which is, notice, also strange. Everyone re realizes the limitations of this, right? You're, you're like, oh, well, that seems so tawdry, and people like crap, and yeah, yeah, yeah. On the other hand, you want to matter, and so being popular is a good way to do that, and so that feedback is a necessary component of this. Now, uh, so, so that, that's basically, it's got to matter, you have to have an environment where you're allowed, and you have to have material resources. Um, and so, and, and like I said, I've tried to give examples from the various elements here and other ones, but I, I wanted to speak for the last couple of minutes, or 20, 30 minutes here, on where we are today with this, because I think this is a fascinating question, particularly in America. Um, one, no matter how you look at it, materially, no one has ever been better off than we are in the history of man, period. If you want to be a writer, an artist, a dancer, a sculptor, you want to be alive here and now, or in Western Europe here and now, right? This is the time, this is the place. Uh, you have access to supplies, you have access to um, examples, you have the entire history of mankind, art, literary, musical, is at your fingertips. It's an embarrassment, even like perhaps even a drowning embarrassment, of riches, overwhelming riches. Fiscally, we are unbelievably well off. We just don't starve. This is a big advantage. I mentioned before the coffee cure, right, in my previous lecture. But to understand that when people talked about, you know, uh, being a bohemian, often like the Impressionist letters are filled with this, what they meant was... Well, we didn't eat last week. Um, there's a letter from Monet, I think to Manet, but to, to one of his friends, one of his thousands of letters begging for money, and he said, you know, I've got three kids, the wife is sick, 
Nobody has eaten for three days. Could you send me some money for paint? Literally. <laughs> That's literally true. Because he was out of paint. And relatively speaking, paint was really expensive at the time. And he couldn't paint. And so he's like, oh, we'll work out the food thing problem. So we, we're, we tend not, we're not in that world, generally speaking. Um, our rents are sort of high. Space tends to be kind of spendy. But in much of the country, it's not that bad. New York has famously priced itself out of the market. San Francisco is there. I don't know if people are familiar with San Francisco now. It's completely, I mean, it is unbelievably expensive to try and do anything in San Francisco. So almost nothing is done in San Francisco. This is, this is what it amounts to. It's a venue. They have venues, but that's it. Uh, you know, it's sort of been emptied out. Uh, Oakland is more, you know, other places like that. Environmentally wise, it, we're in this weird space. On one hand, again, we have essentially no censorship. You can do whatever the hell you want, and nobody cares. Ah, that's the flip side. Nobody cares. And, and, and it's, it's just both the beauty of it and the sadness of it, right? Our government has no interest in art. I mean, it, there's, it, no matter how you slice it, our government does not care about art. And I, basically, given the history of government's involvement in art, I think that's for the best. <laughs> there's a really ugly history of government meddling in art. There's a few moments where, like, oh, they did really well, they did great. Most of it is not pretty. Uh, and so, it, no matter how you look at it, though, the, the, the National Endowment for the Arts gets like $1.12 a year. Um, and they spend it just, just absurdly. I and mean, they do the dumbest stuff. But uh, you know, all of these institutions are tiny. So basically, our governments, both at state, local, and federal level, have no interest. Um, I did the calculations comparing us to France. Uh, if we were France, the federal government would be transferring to Washington State for art spending something like a billion dollars a year. Because if you look, they transfer money from the federal government in, 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 in Paris, or in France, which is all located in Paris, to the provinces um, based on some formula that they have. I don't know what it is. But for our population, relative to the populations of various ones I looked at, it would work out to be close to a billion dollars a year for the arts. I mean, that's unbelievable. I mean, for Jefferson County, we would get, you know, 50 to 70 million a year from the state to spend on arts. Right here, knock yourself out. You know? I, I mean, I don't even know what we would do. I can't, I'm trying to figure out what they do with it in France. I don't know what they're doing with it, right? I mean, I, I, it's, it's a huge, it's an unbelievable, but we don't do that. We don't believe in it, we're not going to do it. We're buying battleships, by the way, and, and aircraft carriers. We have good aircraft carriers. Um, but, where else do you look? Go, okay, well, if what elites invest in arts? Um, most of the art world, not to be uh, highly critical here, but it's really become an investment game. Um, it really is focused on the investment quality of the art that you're producing, which is okay, but it's a, it's a, it's a different approach. And so, Many of the major art buyers around today actually don't buy art. They hire people who advise them to buy art. So if you're going to, if you have some, a lot of extra cash laying around, what you do is you hire someone who buys art for your home and or your offices um, in, in various ways. And that's strange, but that, that's a sort of narrow elite. 
So this leaves two things, subcultures and popularity. Not surprisingly, this is where our art thrives. Our art thrives in subcultures, in various niche markets all over the country where different kinds of arts and different things seem to that small group relatively important. Um, my favorite example, my students told me this, I didn't realize this, so I've done some research. Anybody heard of a guy called Skrillex? Skrillex, yes. Well, uh, so Skrillex, nobody had ever heard of Skrillex before either. Um, he's, in, he's in sort of the San Francisco, LA dance scene. It's called dubstep is the style of music that he's into. Um, well, he put a video, he wasn't even a video, he put a song up on YouTube that he recorded on his Mac laptop. And in about four months, he had 80 million hits. Wow. 80 million views of his video. This forced the music industry to give him Grammys and sign him fast. But nobody had heard of him. They had no idea who he was. Ah, the reason you guys haven't heard of him and I haven't heard of him is because we spend no time in the major dance clubs of the world. If we did, he would be famous. Everybody knew Skrillex before he got the 80 million hits on that song. Who was in those dance clubs? So if, if anybody hang out in Ibiza, by the way, people know Ibiza? Yeah. So they have dance clubs there that hold 30,000 people. You, you pay 50 to $100 a night to get in. They run almost 24 hours a day. And so, and they're all over the world. These, this huge 5, 10, 15, 20, 30,000 person dance club that bring in these DJs are all over the world. In that circuit, that subculture, Skrillex, is huge. Everybody knows who he is. They love him. Outside of it, nobody's ever heard of the guy. Until suddenly, you know, people, oh, somebody hears the song, they're like, wow, this is great. And all of a sudden, the record company's like, ah, sign him fast. <laughs> you know, that sort of, it's a different motivation when it comes out of subcultures. What's weird about that is outside of the subculture, you don't exist. And so it creates this sort of hermetically sealed environments where everybody thinks what they're doing doesn't matter in any way outside. It's this strange, right? It doesn't seem to really matter in any big way. Either if I'm, if I'm in my subculture, people love me great. If I step outside of it, I'm a nothing. Which is a sort of a daunting task or a, a daunting challenge. Um, and then, of course, there's just strict popularity. Right? And again, you know, we're familiar with that, but this is why if you watch TV, read newspapers, see magazines, listen to the radio, Whatever is popular is on magazine, newspaper, and TV, because this is how we tell people they matter. Um, the fact that popularity is, again, this poor judge of quality and what's going to last. We all understand these criticisms, which is it's all true. But, but also another limitation is a vanishingly small number of people, whatever their merit, will ever be popular by definition. It's, it's, and so it basically tells everybody that you simply do not matter because you aren't popular, and statistically speaking, you never will be. I mean, really, I mean, this is, it, it, you're just, you, you're not going to be someone who matters, and so whatever you do is worthless. Um, which may be true, but, you know, you don't like to hear it. Uh, now, the problem here in particular um, is we live in, well, back up slightly, we live in a period that's called decadence. So Jacques Barzon uses this, he says, in a classical period, everybody knows what the rules are to whatever you're trying to do. 
You can either follow the rules and people say, wow, you've come very close to the rules, we like what you're doing, or you can say, I'm not going to follow the rules and people say, you've broken the rules, we don't like what you're doing. But there's no confusion about what the standards are. There's room to maneuver, they develop, they change, but basically we all agree on what's going on. In decadent periods, which we're clearly in, historically there's been numerous competing standards. And people say, well, I'm meeting these standards. They say, well, we don't agree with those standards. And various standards have fought it out. As far as I know, we're in this historically completely unprecedented. We have no standards whatsoever. <laughs> um, it's true. No, I mean, truly. We, America, it's important to remember for America, we were founded on the notion that you cannot judge me. There is no king who is better than me. There is no aristocracy who is better than me. There is no religious authority who is better than me. I am the equal of the state. We are all equal before the law. This is a great idea. This is a wonderful idea. Very liberating. Ah, who's going to tell us we matter? See, see the problem this creates? We hate any institution that will in any way tell us that somebody is better than us? We love to hear we're better than them. We have no problem with that. But we don't want them to say somebody is better than us. But of course, in any institution that's doing this sort of judging, this is what has to ha isn't necessary to happen. I was, my students again told me this uh, uh, last week. I was stunned. It turns out it looks like it's true. If you play Little League today, everybody who plays gets a trophy. <laughs> what the hell is that? <laughs> Everybody gets a trophy. On one hand, oh, that's great. On the other hand, you're like, well, if you're actually good, what you've just been told is being good does not matter. If you do not differentiate between the quality of Little League play, painting, sculpting, anything, then there is no way to generate any sense that anything you do might in any way matter. Um, and, and notice this works even if you disagree with the judgment. If someone says, look, you've done this work, we think it's third rate, but we love this work, ah, now you can articulate, look, here's where I think you misunderstand the nature of goodness that is present in my work. My work is good because of this. You're stuck on these principles, which I do not agree with. Ha ha, let us fight. We will articulate our differences. And that's the history of, you know, 300 years of aesthetic disagreement. What do you do when people say, everybody gets a trophy? <laughs> right? Where would the impressionists be if they said, oh yes, everybody's in the salon? If everybody's in the salon, there is no impressionist movement. We never have them. It just simply will not exist. If, if, in Dong China, the court said, oh, everybody's a great poet. We love all your calligraphy. <laughs> how would you ever, how would Dufu, how would, Li, how would they ever exist? They wouldn't. You couldn't know. It would just be, it's all good, everything's good, it's all equally good. <laughs> right? And so we have this weird environment that we've created where on one hand, we say we should promote creativity. We want people to be creative, be creative. And then we say, everything that you do is good, or at least it's all equally unbad. I don't know, I never know exactly <laughs> what the message is that we're getting. But notice how unhelpful that is. Also notice how people, we gravitate towards art forms like poetry, which has basically been killed by this, I would argue, 
where people say, I write poetry, oh. And then if you say anything critical, but you can't criticize poetry because it's my self-expression. And it's like, what? There are no <laughs> rules to poetry. It's like abstract painting. Everybody, everybody looks at Pollock and they said, oh, it's just strips, I could do that. One, by the way, no, 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 try this. <laughs> try this at home. Pollock was, a, was an amazing man. Uh, you cannot do this at home. If you've ever seen a Pollock, they're, they're just extraordinary to see in person. But try it. You know, go ahead. Knock yourself out. Good luck. Um, but do it like, oh, it's abstract, so you can't judge. It's like, no, that's not a problem at all. Let me tell you, if you see many of his Pollocks in person, they will knock you down. You can judge them. They're gripping. They're, they're absolutely gripping. Look, music is abstract. People have no problem judging music. We listen to it and we go, wow, I like that. That moves me. I don't like that. That's boring. I like that. That's insipid. But we judge no problem. We have the capacity to judge abstract painting, but it's not nice. Right? You're not supposed to. Or anyway, somebody can say, well, it's just what's what I do, so you can't, you can't judge me. It's like, okay. But notice the price of that. If there is no judgment, then it just doesn't matter. It simply does not matter. If you lack an environment in which aesthetic judgments seem to make a difference, then where's the impulse? Where's the impulse to be good? Where's the impulse to stretch yourself, challenge yourself, to fail, to learn, to explore? This, and this is, you know, it's, it's a really, I think it's probably the fun, most fundamental challenge in our culture, because this it's either popular or, and or makes money, which is unanswerable. Right? This is the answer to everything in our society. Is it any good? Well, it's made millions. Everybody aware Thomas Kincaid died, right? So this is, this was, no, I, he's the greatest example of this because we have no idea in our society how to respond to this. Because people go, well, it's not very good. And then somebody else says, look, he's in 10 million American homes and he was turning like $20 million a year in profit. Therefore, he's the greatest American artist in history. By, but without doubt, he's the greatest American painter in history. If popularity and money are your definition, it's not even a competition. There's no one even close second. To turn 15, 20, 30 million dollars a year, year after year for decades? He is the greatest American artist of all time. <laughs> Whistler and Pollock be damned, right? I mean, they could just go away. There's, nobody could hold the candle to this guy. Ah, we laugh. If you think it's funny, now articulate why he's a terrible painter. He's a terrible painter. Uh, why is that? But notice, once you enter into that swamp of judgment, you have to begin to articulate your ideals, your ideas, how you differentiate between good and bad, what you find inspiring, what you find unfigurable, what you find, I don't know, I can't judge on that, right? You have all these realms of possibility. If people do that consistently, now you have a conversation. Conversation matters, right? Cafes and salons have something to do. People are discoursing, you can write letters. It will grow and seem to matter. If you don't, then the only thing that matters is, hey, he sold, he's good, period. End of full stop, right? He's the greatest American artist. If you don't think he is, well, then you've got to articulate the capacity to make judgments about things like art. It's, it's really you know, weird in our society for this very reason. It's a huge challenge here. Um, finally, it all rolls back, of course, and this is back to the individual. So you can see this, the individual is operating in this weird, for us, weird environment. But again, I don't know if it's any weirder than any historic environment. 
I think every historical environment is sort of strained in its own way. This is our peculiar challenge. But finally, when you go back to the individual, it's the question of the creative that we started with. Um, so we're in this strange environment, materially rich, <coughs> totally unfettered, great access in a society that nothing matters if it's not money or popularity. And so if you're a great, brilliant painter, you're held up Thomas Kincaid. You go, he's the icon, right? You can't do better than that. Uh, I knew a sculptor from New York. I was talking to him about two years ago. And I asked him, because I, I never understand sculpting, and it, he's quite, quite an amazing sculptor. I said, how, how do you ever make money working in you know, marble? I mean, writing is a lost cause, and you, I write on this stuff. Imagine that you were writing on something that cost about $15,000 just to get into your studio. Right? And who's going to buy it? And then you've made one. Congratulations. Right? I mean, this is dumb. Like, from any sort of economic analysis, it's dumb. And he said, oh, yeah, absolutely. Make sure what I'm doing now. He's doing stuff out of styrofoam. I'm like, oh, my God. He's like, yeah, but what else are you going to do? Right? I mean, and he just realized that you want to work in styrofoam. So he does this crappy shit in styrofoam. I mean, it's just terrible. And I'm like, well, and he's like, look, you got to sell it. got to make money. Well, is he going to use it as a mold? Or? No, 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 no. He's carving and stacking up styrofoam. Straight up. Just, and as fast as he can, because that's how you make money. And it's working, by the way. It's working. Uh, he is making money. So, I mean, it is sort of the great answer. But so we go back, we have the individual. Unbelievably wealthy society filled with unbelievably wealthy individuals who could, if they chose, spend lots and lots of their money generating either free time and or investing in the arts. We are not doing this. I see no chance that we will do this anytime soon, unfortunately. However, we could. Why don't we? Um, this, is, this is one of my fundamental questions about the creative. Notice that I, this is a question I always ask. I, I want it because I really want to know the answer. For me, I was always trying to remember when did they take the finger paints away in school? <laughs> right? The, 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 like the finger paints, and they used to have Play Doh and stuff. Now, personally, I hated this part of school. I had no interest in this. Because I was like, I, I'm not that aesthetic person in that direction. Um, but I think it was about the second grade. It just vanishes. And then I don't remember having the opportunity to do anything like that again until I was in college. Not that I would have taken advantage of it. But it just goes away. We're told that these sorts of things are childish. They are for children. They are not for serious things. Right? You can't just enjoy making beautiful things as part of your education because... I would be wrong. I don't know why, but apparently, right? Is this about right? Second, third grade? Is that about when we lost the, the really cool, fun stuff? Yeah, uh, and it didn't come back for a long time, right? I mean, it was, the opportunity to re-engage seems to be many years down the road. Many lessons are learned by then, mostly by modeling. This stuff doesn't count. But let's say you are a particularly gifted young person. You start sketching or playing the guitar or whatever. Two messages for you. One, wow, you're really good. You should work hard at that. Why? Where, where did this work hard thing come from? <laughs> right? Ah, because then you can make it a career. So if you're good, you must monetize your aesthetic capacity. This is your goal. Early on, right? We tell these kids early on. This is like right from the get-go. Forget this creativity crap. We're not interested in creativity. Theoretically, aren't. What we're interested in is monetizing it, professionalizing it. 
And so we have this strange dichotomy where most people are given subtle and not really terribly subtle messages that you don't want any part of this in your life. The arts don't matter. You don't do them. They're not for you. A small subset of people who, for whatever reason, show an inclination or early talent, we go the opposite direction and say, you must do this. You play the piano eight hours a day. You play the guitar. You know, you will, if you're good at sketching, we're going to sketch, sketch. We're going to send you to art camp. We're going to send you to art school. And then, you know, and then you can have a career, which seems like, you know, wrong the other direction. <laughs> No wonder so many artists are alcoholics. Well, yeah, maybe that's, well, yeah. Maybe that's part of it. But, but, right, I mean, this is essentially, I think this is the narrative, right, that we get, right, that, and that we give other people. We say, oh, if you're really good, then you should practice really hard and get really very much better so that you're so good that you can make a fortune like Thomas Kincaid. Right? Or you're like, well, you know, you shouldn't really take it seriously. You should give it up. It's not really part of your life. Back to where we started, though. All the evidence suggests that creativity, self-expression, is innate in us. And that in any environment in which we have the opportunity and have the material resources, if we're not, there has to be an explanation. Like I said, I try to, to, to both these elements. One is, we're in a society where we're told it simply does not matter. This is the only way, by the way, I can explain the uniformity of, of suburbs and, and housing tract developments. I'm always amazed by this. Think about how expensive a house is. This is a major, huge, material object. And to see acres and acres, to go to Seattle, look, look in the Times, look what they advertise, hundreds of houses that are essentially identical, made with the same materials, painted with the same paints. I mean, minor variation, but you know. If you were from Mars and you were down here doing an aesthetic review, you'd be like, why are they living in barracks? Why, why do they make every house precisely the same? It would not be obvious to you that they were actually different. Now, historically, people built vernacular architecture because that's what they had the resources to do, that's what they knew how to do, and they tended to be trying to do it as cheap and quickly as they possibly could, with the exception of nobles. But we have the resource. Look how, I mean, these houses cost, you know, three hundred, five hundred, eight hundred thousand dollars $800,000. That's a lot of money. And we've decided that we're going to configure our money when we put it in houses exactly the same way as everybody else. This is a terror of non-uniformity. Right? This is, this, it, it, the notion that if my house looks different from anybody else on the block, that's bad. Think about that this is the, almost essentially the opposite of the creative impulse. Self-expression, no. Self-control, self-containment. I do not want any part of me to see it out. Those people out there might see it and judge me. They might say, your house is ugly and looks funny. Right? Um, and, and, and then, ooh, that's bad. It's very strange. But when you go out in America, that's why I don't like to leave Port Townsend, because America is... <laughs> It's terrifying, isn't it? It's just terrifying. <laughs> and you see these lands, and you go, oh my gosh. And anytime you see variation from that out there, it tends to be an expression of power and the fact that I matter. There was a, I think it was Architectural Digest. My friend Jim Ball always got Architectural Digest. And, 
there was, I think he was a guy who was a movie producer, and he's standing there, he's got the big front doors that are wide open, right? Sort of modernist house, like probably the entryway is probably as tall as this. And he's got his wife and the two perfect kids, you know, with a beautiful sort of supermodel wife and the two perfect kids, and they're standing there. And when you walk in the foyer, it's, you know, I don't mean 15 feet deep, there's a huge wall, and there's a photograph across this wall. And it's three supermodels with spiked heels, totally naked, walking out like this. <laughs> And that's when you open the front door, that's what you see. And you're like, see, that guy is saying, I've got power. I'm doing just what I want. This is what I want to do. I'm rich, I have power, I will express myself. You look out the rest, it's just like terror, right? It's just this timidity. I can't let anything out. And don't believe me, just drive around any suburb. This is what you see. If you see one house, there was somebody who said, you know what, I want a bright yellow front door. Or I, I'm going to replant my front yard with all edible fruit. <laughs> People are like, oh, that's bad. Right? Well, your neighbors are going to be on you. A lot of places, they have codes against this. They will not allow you to do this. You have to pull out that edible fruit, put that lawn back in. Because <laughs> you'll affect the way my house is perceived. I don't want to live in a neighborhood where people want fruit. Good lord. <laughs> you know, uh, this is, this, that's actually a true story. My friend, my friend Tiwi did this. She was, she's from Indonesia. And when they bought a tract home, horrible tract home, uh, in California, the first thing she did is plant it with all sort of Indonesian foods that she likes that she could eat. And all the neighbors just hated them. Because she had this like lush, overgrown, like with these great tropical fruits that she liked to eat and cook with and herbs. And every, every other place was just concrete and, and grass. And then you had this like, jump, and concrete and grass. You know, and it, it, everybody hated them. But so again, it's this strange milieu that we live in. On one hand, be creative, express yourself, free country, material resources, we're there, we're great. But it doesn't matter. And if you do step out of line, we are going to judge you. Conversely, we say, yes, I'm going to express myself. I'm going to do what I want, but nobody gets to judge me. <laughs> right? I am above or behind or below or un unavailable for judgment. Whatever I do <laughs> right, is totally spectacularly wonderful because it's what I did. <laughs> right? And you're like, you know, that's really, historically, this is not accurate. Uh, great painters have painted crappy things. Picasso said this famously, does everything I paint have to be a masterpiece? By which he meant, I spend a lot of time screwing around with paint, ladies and gentlemen. But now, of course, it doesn't matter which Picasso. You have any Picasso, you're in good shape. We do not judge between the aesthetic merits of the Picassos. We just know that it is a Picasso. It actually sort of bothered Picasso a little bit. He was happy to cash the checks. Uh, he really, he had one of the world's great collections of banknotes, right? That's what Picasso collected. Uh, but, but this is, you know, that incapacity to say, hey, you know, this is good, that, eh, not so good, don't like it, this is a problem there. But in an articulate manner, the final note on this, what we've sort of reduced ourselves to is, you know, uh, 10 greatest artists in history. What? <laughs> like, like oh, yeah. there's a finite amount of artistic beauty available, and if we ascribe some to any given artist, we're taking it from all the others. No, but notice it's a way of avoiding making any actual discernible judgment. 
of saying, you know, Pollock has these skills and, and, and does this, and this is why I think he, he's a particularly great painter, whereas this person who seems to be doing something similar doesn't do that. And you could say, well, you like this element, but I like what this guy does. And then notice we can articulate our differences, and we can both sort of have perfectly reasonable positions that are viable. But the notion of saying that if, if Picasso is good, then Pollock must be bad, or if uh, Mozart's early works are good, his late works must be decadent. Or, you know, Beethoven's symphonies were great, but, you know, his quartets were, you know, they're just sort of minor pieces. Or if his quartets are great, well, his symphonies, right? That, that somehow the only thing we can do is sort of rank one through ten, or that's good or that's bad, which is, of course, the same thing as not judging. It's just to say, well, that's passable, and this is not, or that's great, and that's not. It's the most uh, coarse of all possible judgments. That doesn't allow us to then come around to someone like Thomas Kincaid and do anything but say, oh, he's terrible, we laugh at it. Ah, okay, great, but why? Why is he terrible? Why do we laugh at it? See, why do we care? Because and why do we care? This is another thing. Well, who cares? We don't all care. Let, let Thomas Kincaid do what it, what difference does it make what Thomas Kincaid does, right? It doesn't make any difference. Ah, but then it doesn't matter. No, it still if it, matters. No, no, no. If it doesn't matter, if it doesn't matter when people do bad art, then it doesn't matter. It right? matters, it, but it's, an, it's just in an entirely different area, like buying a comic book where it makes people feel good. But see, this is the thing, right? So, so this, is our, this is where we're in this very strange place. Historically speaking, if you have the material resources, you have people who have the sort of peculiar education and inclination, which seems to be biologically there, you don't have a lot of interference from the outside, people start producing, it's almost instantaneous. The rarity of the cultural fluorescences will let you know how rare that seemingly small set of, of, of requirements is. Particularly, historically, the material part has been you know, scanty. Um, two, now that we're in this strange place where we have basically everything that you would think we would need, but we've removed this element of mattering. In our culture, it just does not matter, and we don't seem to be able to figure out a way to articulate for ourselves or for our environment, how do we change that? How do we bring that about? And I, you know, I don't know, I don't have an answer to that, but this just seems to be where we are. So, that I would say is our cultural milieu. Thank you very much. <laughs> right.